Full Circle respectfully acknowledges that we are creating and telling the stories we share on the traditional unceded territories of the Wasanich and Sanchothan-speaking peoples. Our desire with Full Circle is to empower voices and narratives which speak to a more diverse range of peoples and experiences. You're listening to Full Circle, a program about Victoria, B.C., the land, the history, and the people, broadcasting from Victoria, B.C. on CFUV 101.9 FM. This episode will challenge what people know about Victoria's Chinatown by dispelling myths and exploring the reality of Chinatown's history through stories of lived experience and by talking to experts about the real history of the sensationalized neighborhood and how some of the city's bizarre myths came to be. Our search led us to John Adams, a man who knows the so-called dark corners of Victoria better than anyone. He gave her a jar of poison and told her to kill Yip Tang, but she wouldn't do that. And she told Chan to get lost in no uncertain terms. And that night he came down with his cleaver. And while she was leaning out the window, he brought the cleaver down and chopped her head off. And then he ran for all he was worth. He needed a place to hide or escape. He found the entrance to Fantan Alley, the gambling alley. He knew the way in. He'd been there many times before. And in he ran. But... Suddenly, a group of 20 men came out of one of the gambling I'm John Adams, and I'm a historian in Victoria, and I run a company called Walking Tours by Discover the Past. We do, as the name suggests, mostly walking tours, history tours by day, and ghosty walks by night is our mantra. But we also do a lot of historical research. Uh, we do lectures and, and presentations and many other things of that sort. We also write books. A tour with John takes you through the heart of downtown, accompanied by chilling stories of murder, madness, and the paranormal narrated by John and his son, Chris. As a historian, he knows all about the history of the city. Victoria's Chinatown has a, has a fascinating history. It is undisputably the oldest urban Chinatown in Canada. There were many other communities as well, but Victoria was the first major urban center because up until 1886, when Vancouver became the terminus of the Canadian Pacific Railway, Victoria was the only major port of entry, which surprises people these days. So everybody coming in to the, uh, to the fledgling colony, the Gold Rush colony after 1858, came to Victoria. And many people stayed. And of course, people were coming to get rich, at least to make some money. And the Chinese wanted to get rich and make some money along with everybody else. And mm -hmm. so they came. And although some went to the gold fields, for sure, and some stayed in the gold fields. Uh, many decided to stay here and open warehouses or stores and provide other services for the miners that were coming and going through Victoria because they didn't come to stay. Many of them were actually planning to go back to China, and some did. And so Victoria was a two-way street, the entrance and also the exit for people coming to Canada. And certainly that was the case for people from China. As a tour guide, he's heard some of the town's strangest legends, and John knows how to thread the facts with the fairy tales to create a truly terrifying he experience. He ran to the place where he worked, but he was captured there two days later. He hanged himself in his jail cell. His ghost came back to the place where he was captured. But his ghost is still haunting Pantan Alley, retracing his escape. People coming through see him, the shadowy form of the boy, running toward them, and then suddenly they feel themselves being pushed up against the wall. And then everything is returned to normal. Pantan Alley, the heart of Chinatown, and one of the most haunted places in Victoria. 
Whether the ghost stories are true, no one can say for sure, but it is true that Victoria's downtown was no stranger to dark dealing. Chinatown was once host to many illegal dealings, including gambling, prostitution, and one of the largest opium operations in North America. Since it was once a common spot for police raids, Chinatown's famous Fantan Alley has built up a number of stories over the years and earned a stop on Adam's ghost tour. It wasn't just in Chinatown. There were gambling dens in other parts of town as well. But perhaps because the Chinese gambling dens were around the back and upstairs and uh, seemed to be hidden away, uh, maybe it just helped um, heighten the imaginations of, of non-Chinese who, who saw these things or, or heard about them. They did exist, for sure, and it was a major activity in Chinatown. Gambling, of course, was not legal. Mm-hmm. But um, the police would occasionally raid the gambling dens. And it seems that the police weren't always trying very hard. But once in a while, the mayor and council would have a moral crackdown and uh, the police would be sent in. But according to some of the old-timers who ran these gambling dens in the 1920s and 30s, they're the ones I've been able to talk to, it seems that the gambling den owners had a, a good relationship with the police and sometimes had bribed them and the police had notified them in advance that they were coming anyway. Right. And probably they took their time with axes and sledgehammers breaking their way in while the gamblers were heading out the back. Mm-hmm. So um, that sort of thing was very real. That's not made up. But Adams did draw a line when it came to fact and fiction, as one of the most common questions he gets on his ghost tours are about Victoria's secret network of underground tunnels beneath Chinatown. There's always been a rumor of underground passages in Chinatown, here in Victoria, but also in many other cities as well where there are Chinatowns. And I moved to Victoria in 1960. I was 11 at that point, and we lived close to downtown. And my friends and I spent a huge amount of time looking for the secret tunnels. It was sort of something to do on a on a weekend, and we roamed around looking for the secret tunnels. Why? I don't know. I guess it was kind of exciting. Accounts vary according to who you ask, but the popular belief is that Chinese businesses used to build hidden underground tunnels that would allow gamblers, prostitutes, and opium dealers to disappear when the police came knocking. Atop of its controversial crime history, many tourists still come to Victoria to seek out these mysterious passageways. But decades of searching in Victoria has revealed nothing resembling an underground network outside of a few small storm drains. And given the fact that some of Victoria's police were accomplices to criminals downtown, Adams thinks that the famous Fantan Alley Disappearing Act might just have been a cover for crooked cops. So if you look at the police records, I I decided once and for all, okay, I've got to get to the bottom of this. If there were secret tunnels, the police would have known where they were because they raided the gambling dens. Well, all the police records in the police archives, and it's really a wonderful resource here in Victoria, all the records talk about the police going upstairs, past barricaded doors with axes and sledgehammers to break the doors down, or on occasion to a room at the back of a building at street level, but there's not one single reference to them going downstairs underground. And if you think about it, if there was a basement and the police arrived, everybody would be trapped in those rooms. It was much easier to have a room upstairs where they could get out the back windows or down the fire escapes into the series of alleys behind. And so... People always ask about the secret tunnels, so I'm not surprised that, that you have asked about them, but I, I really have come to c- conclude they're not there. It seems that Victoria's underground was more likely above ground. If you go to Chinatown and look at any building excavation, it's mostly solid rock underneath. Hmm. 
And although a few buildings after 1900 were built with basements, the older buildings didn't have basements. And those buildings are still there. Mm -hmm. And so even as they have been fixed up, um, I've looked, there are no tunnels. It's just solid rock under the building. And of course, people say, oh, you're just trying to hide the fact. Well, I, I have no reason to hide the fact. I would love to have secret tunnels under mm -hmm. Chinatown. Yeah. Uh, I don't really think there is a conspiracy. So I always say to people, if you know where those secret tunnels are, please let me know. I don't want to be the last to know. But the myths about Chinatown's secret tunnels don't begin and end in Victoria. Over the past century, similar rumors have emerged in Vancouver and other such more distant cities. New York, London, San Francisco all tell the same stories about criminal tunnels, and in every case, it's below the city's respect of Chinatown. So how could these stories be connected? The answer, it turns out, is elementary. It turns out that the idea of Chinatown as a place of secret tunnels was popularized by Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, Conan Doyle did not know London that well, although that surprises people because he wrote lots about it. And Limehouse was one of the districts down the Thames, where the, a lot of Chinese had settled. And on at least one occasion, Sherlock Holmes went down looking for some suspect, down at the murky depths, down a stairway into mm -hmm. a, an opium-filled room. And this really, it turns out, is probably the beginning of the whole idea that Chinatowns have these secret tunnels for clandestine purposes. Sherlock Holmes wasn't the only one to explore this mythical vision of Chinatown. Charles Dickens explores the very same district of London in his work, The Mystery of Edwin Drood, Crime, Squalor, and Opium. Dickens' depiction is equally unflattering. Without a platform for the Chinese population to tell their own stories, these stories which describe a fictional part of London become rumors worldwide, and in Victoria, those rumors became a legend. Chinatown um, to the non-Chinese community has always seemed very exotic, but I, I think... Um, Inevitably, people are looking for the sensational. Mm -hmm. And whether it's this sort of thing, the opium and the, uh, the gambling, or whether it's something else in one's family history that just makes it a little different. Um, at one time, people hid these things, but today, uh, people certainly try to bring them out. And it's not done in a malicious way. It's done, I think, purely out of human interest. And that interest is why people flock to John Adams' ghost tour with questions about an underground ring that never existed. With the knowledge that Chinatown's most notorious secrets are probably exaggerations based on the works of famous English authors, we set out to find a more honest look at Chinatown's history. It is, after all, structures like the Gate of Harmonious Interest are a wild and spectacular part of Victoria's downtown. But popular interest only points us to the history of Chinatown's criminal underground. Why are these the stories that surface first? And if Chinese culture was really at the mercy of labels set by popular fiction, how did Victoria's extravagant Chinatown come to be? To help answer these questions, we sat down with two of the University of Victoria history professors, John Lutz and Songping Chen. Sure, my name is John Lutz. I teach history at the University of Victoria, where I'm a professor and uh, at the moment I'm chair of the department. Yeah, my name is Songping Chen, and Chen is my last name or family name. But actually, my Chinese name is Chen Zongping, uh, because all Chinese names start from their family names and end with giving names. 
Uh, I have been a uh, full professor uh, of Chinese history at the University of Victoria from uh, 2015. Uh, but I came to the University of Victoria in 2002, so I have been here for like 16 years. Both Lutz and Songpeng have a vested interest in the race dynamics in Victoria's history. Lutz and his colleague are conducting a long-term research project into Victoria's history of racialization, most recently covering Chinatown in his article, Making the Inscrutable Scrutable, Race and Space in Victoria's Chinatown, 1891. Song Peng is the University of Victoria's foremost professor of Chinese history and is currently writing a book on the Chinese-Canadian history in the 19th century. The Rise and Reform and Revolution of Trans-Pacifica Chinese Diaspora, 1788 to 1918. Both professors had a lot to offer on Chinatown's misrepresented history, and as their work suggests, tense race relations had a big role to play. Because Victoria was, up until the late 18th century, one of the only Pacific ports into Canada, as John Adams said, large waves of Chinese immigrants seeking wealth from the BC gold rush arrived in the 1850s, many of them hoping to return to China. Yeah, because usually we assume the Chinese migration to Canada uh, from the mid-19th century, from 1858. That is not true. Uh, the Chinese actually came, larger scale Chinese immigration happened first uh, to Vancouver Island as early as 1788. And that actually was probably the earliest larger scale of Chinese migration to whole new world, including North America, uh, Australia, uh, Hawaii. Mm-hmm. So that's the reason my book started from 1788 rather than from uh, 1858, as uh, most of the publication on Chinese Canadian history uh, would start. Yeah. So that uh, is important, especially for the local history, because uh, in other words, Vancouver Island is really a birthplace of the, the Chinese aspirin in the Trans-Pacific area, not only for the Chinese Canadian history. BC ports were uniquely accessible to Chinese immigrants at the time, so much so that the word traveled back to China about the so-called Gold Mountain. Here's John Lutz. Um, China, in the southern parts of China, Guangdong area, uh, near what's now Hong Kong and Can- Guangdong, Canton, uh, was going through a kind of an economic crisis uh, and uh, people were hungry and looking for work and labor was in oversupply. And so there's a huge Chinese diaspora, Chinese workers from these uh, about nine or maybe 12 counties in southern China go all over the world uh, to uh, Asia, or sorry, to other parts of Asia, Singapore, uh, to Africa, to the Caribbean. They're uh, looking for work. Uh, and and they're often um, because they're they're desperate. Uh, they will take these uh, essentially indentured labor contracts to work, where someone will pay their fare uh, to wherever the new country is to Victoria, uh, and a um, kind of labor broker. And uh, then the first maybe even year that they're here, certainly months, they don't really make any money. They get fed, but they have to pay back the the, the travel loan, and then they can save some money and. All of their ideas was to go back to China. So they are all planning to take wealth. And, and uh, B.C. became a little bit uh, famous because of the gold fields here in B.C. And in China, it was also known as Gold Mountain. Um, and so the idea is we come here, get rich, and then take that money back to China, support your family. 
And, and so that's why it's a male migration. They're, they're planning just to come for a short time. But of course, what happens uh, is that it really wasn't a gold mountain. Uh, they didn't, many didn't get rich. Um, and um, so uh, some of them just stayed and stayed and stayed. And uh, after a while, um, when this was still legal, because Canada starts to introduce immigration restrictions in 1885, but um, and then and then prohibitions in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, um, once uh, some of them have decided that they're really not likely to go home, uh, then they send either send back for uh, for a bride or go home and bring a bride back. What many immigrants expected was a scheme to earn enough funds to both return to China and to provide for their families. Most of them found themselves in a pitfall of debt, making small wages in labor-intensive jobs. That, coupled with the growing rumors about underground societies and Chinese boogeymen, blotted out the many hopes of the return for the immigrants and stopped them from rising up in this new Canadian society. You're absolutely right. I think there's an exoticization of Chinatown that goes on, that has gone on for a long time and uh, continues to go on. And I think it has two maybe sources. Uh, Historically, um, back into the 19th century, it was probably... um, a way of uh, trying to warn people away from Chinatown. Uh, you know, these ideas about opium dens and enslaving white women and uh, um, uh, the dangers of Chinatown is, was probably a trope that was um, uh, repeated uh, as a way of trying to warn um, respectable white men and women away from Chinatown. But I think that that developed a whole series, a narrative and series of stories about secret tunnels and opium dens and, uh, and uh, as you say, kind of hidden doors and gambling. Some of, some of, I mean, all of this is based on a certain germ of truth, but the stories, uh, I think, you know, many of them fabricated or certainly elaborated. And also another reason, I think, is probably the impact of the, the anti-Chinese racism of the past, especially uh, it's a anti-Chinese racist uh, racism, uh, racist uh, propaganda in local media, uh, in order to show the Chinese deserved to be discriminated, uh, to be excluded from Canadian society. So, the local media create uh, quite a few uh, mysterious stories about the weird, uh, you know, tears about the Chinese local Chinatowns. You know how the Chinese. Uh, the culture and their daily, even daily life was so weird, so different from uh, the people uh, in the mainstream society. And uh, for example, how the Chinese were addicted to uh, like opium, uh, gambling, and uh, prostitution, <laughs> you know, uh, a lot of these kind of stuff. And the Chinese, uh, uh, and also uh, certainly at that time, you know, there was actually opium in Canada. Actually, was legal legal until uh, 1909, I think. And the gambling, even today, I think, is still legal in British Columbia. We have so many casinos, you know. Yes. yes. <laughs> and uh, but for media, I think they created these kind of weird tears by Chinese, not only for anti-Chinese racism, also for probably for leadership. Gambling and prostitution busts were reported to have happened across Victoria, but in the media, it seemed that Chinatown would take the spotlight most often. And it's not that prostitution and gambling didn't happen in Chinatown. It happened all over Victoria. 
It's just that the stories we tell about Chinatown, you know, are those ones rather than, you know, the Broad Street brothels that, uh, that the elite went to. What we discovered when we spoke to these professors is that the story of Chinatown was written and rewritten over the years, and yet rarely represented the Chinese people themselves. Flash forward to 2018, and the people still scour the city for tunnels and dens and legends that were designed hundreds of years ago to incriminate the Chinese. The stories had left a deeper impact than the history, and even today, we have trouble separating the sensationalized Chinatown from its true history as a home for targeted people. This is Song Pen again. Uh, for example, even even you go to the PC uh, Royal Museum, uh, Royal Museum, sorry, and uh, you can, you know, if you look at the Chinatown exhibition, you can find Chinatown exhibition is located in a dark corner with a dim light. You almost could easily could miss it, pass it. Uh, but I heard from a staff of the Royal BC Museum, the Chinatown uh, exhibition actually was deliberately designed, presented in that way. Just try to show the Chinatown was, you know, a forbidden city outside of mainstream society of Canada. Uh, it, it was a mysterious part of uh, the city of Victoria. Uh, so this reflects the kind of tendency of the conventional scholarship. Still, many look at Chinatown as a forbidden city of Victoria. But in spite of discrimination, the slander, and the poor positions that the Chinese immigrants were put in, Victoria's Chinatown has never been a disparate place. Even during the height of Chinese racism in Victoria, we see evidence that Chinatown was thriving and expanding. This is John on some of his findings while working on his research project. You know, so one of the surprising things about this whole project was when we went back into the newspapers and um, we decided, because uh, you, you can now search newspapers online, that um, uh, that gave us a new opportunity to think about the, the texts in a different way. In the past, people have read these newspapers and found racist articles about the Chinese and, and kind of thought that's how... Chinese were being framed, and that was the story. But what we found uh, was the Chinese and the community themselves used the newspapers a lot for their own uh, purposes. So uh, lots of businesses advertising to the white clientele. So you got Chinese uh, groceries, Chinese, uh, interesting enough, the Chinese opera is trying to get non-Chinese to come to what's a very <laughs> uh, refined art form that doesn't uh, speak always to a non-Chinese audience. I've been to some Chinese operas. And... Um, uh, uh, also contracting labor. So these uh, wealthy China, Chinese uh, labor contractors are saying, we got, you need some workers, we, got, we, can, we can fix you up. Uh, and uh, things like uh, funerals uh, or announcements of uh, Chinese New Year. Uh, and so the Chinese community is using the newspaper uh, to advertise themselves, their own events. Um, and what we found was that we, we call Chinatown, instead of a forbidden city, I think we think about it as a transactional space where um, non-Chinese are invited in, especially during the day for, you know, to do exchanges, laundry, groceries, all kinds of things. So it was, in fact, this group that can be credited with helping to organize the community politically. Um, 
So, uh, the, you know, Chinese merchant class has really uh, got the community organized. Things like the Chinese Benevolent Association is an amazing organization where they, uh, it's called the Consolidated Benevolent Association. So they bring together these uh, tongs, these various family organizations, and create a Chinese school so that they can teach their own children, you know, their own language. Uh, um, and uh, um, the temples, which still exist in Chinatown, still several of the uh, 19th century Buddhist uh, temples. Um, and and they're busy um, uh, supporting each other. If they, if you get sick and you're a member of one of these communities, your community will take care of you. You know, so it's uh, and 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 then we see strikes uh, when the, the tried to be a segregated school system. The Chinese community struck and said, "You're not going to segregate our kids from uh, you know the the schools." Uh, this was as uh, these were not. Um, I mean, they were victimized by racism, but they didn't take it sitting down. They were active agents in resisting it uh, at every step. This sentiment is supported and expanded upon by Song Ping Chen, who discusses in ways which political organizations act both locally and internationally. If you talk about uh, the Chinese organization, uh, we actually have kind of misunderstanding. We assume the Chinese were not active in politics. Uh, that is not true. Uh, according to my research, uh, the Chinese actually were active in politics uh, from the beginning. In 1880s, uh, the Chinese began to uh, to organize their umbrella community organizations uh, called the Chinese Consolidated Benevolent Association or CCBA. So, uh, this association uh, in Victoria it was established in 1884, and uh, but it is still exists. Uh, you know, it has uh, uh, right now it is located in the Chinese public school inside Chinatown. Uh, but uh, actually, uh, these kind of CCPs uh, appeared uh, not only in Victoria, but also in New York, San Francisco, Portland, and Honolulu. Uh, almost at the same time in early 1880s. Why? Mainly because the, uh, the Chinese, anti-Chinese racism uh, was rising at that time. The Chinese actually organized this kind of organization uh, as a response uh, for the fight against uh, this anti-Chinese racism. And they also tried to use this organization for community reforms. They knew, you know, some Chinese uh, habits like uh, gambling, prostitution were targets of anti-Chinese racism. They tried to reform these Chinese communities by themselves. Song Pen told us about a Chinese politician named Kang Youwei who had fled to China to escape the death penalty. He started the Chinese Empire Reform Association in Victoria, which sought to promote institutional reform in China, but also to reform the Chinese communities outside of China. This organization eventually grew to have over 200 branches worldwide by 1907. Just remember, it started from our Chinatown, local Chinatown, and then spread it to the whole world and promoted reform not only of China, but also of global Chinese community. And that wasn't the only far-reaching and impactful political organization which began in Victoria's Chinatown. His second daughter, called Kang Tongbi, came to Victoria in May 1903, and she actually started a women's, first women's political organization uh, in local Chinatown. This actually is not uh, the first women's organization in local Chinatown. This actually was the first Chinese women's organization in thousand years of Chinese history. Uh, because usually we, we think of Chinese feminist movement, we think of the Chinese 
Japanese women in Japan inside China in you know early 20th century. But actually, my book basically argues that Chinese. To politicize the politicized Chinese feminism really started from Victorians in Chinatown. And then it, uh, this organization was called the Chinese Empire Ladies Reform Association. So that was after his father's organization. The name was his father's organization was called the Chinese Empire Reform Association. And this uh, her organization was called the Chinese Empire Ladies Reform Association. And uh, it developed a second branch in Vancouver and the New Westminster and then spread to the United States. And according to my research, it had developed uh, more than uh, a, a dozen uh, branches, uh, in uh, first in Seattle and then in Portland, and then in a small city called Astoria uh, near uh, Portland, and then in Chicago, uh, New York, Boston, Honolulu. Interestingly, Zongpen says this is something that scholars in both China and in the West rarely knew about. Suffice to say, history has favored the exoticized tunnels and crime dens over these important global political organizations that have their roots here in Victoria's Chinatown. This is John Lutz again. Yeah, I think when we visit Chinatown and we're on one of the walking tours that somebody gives us or we're able to see some of the interpretive signs, um... I think they tend to focus on the exotic. They tend to focus on, um, you know, things like opium, which, uh, you know, was actually a big industry in Chinatown. They focus on gambling. They focus on prostitution and the stories of tunnels, which never actually existed, these tunnels, um, as far as we can tell. Um, I think uh, we just want to be alert to uh, the fact that a lot of these stories are doing a certain kind of work uh, social work, work in our world, that is not, um, uh, th that is really oriented to sensationalism. And um, I would say um, uh, trying to frame the Chinese as somehow unique in, in Victoria. Um, but it, so I would, you know, uh, enjoy those stories, I guess. Uh, and uh, some of them are, you know, well documented and done by reputable people. But um, they're not telling the stories about the white gambling operations that are just across the street or the white brothels that operated all along Broad Street uh, or the um, eccentric white characters. Uh, and, and they're probably, although, you know, the racism certainly mentioned when people talk about Chinatown and, you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act. Uh, and I know that in Market Square itself, you can actually see some of the uh, certificates and displays cases where Chinese had to get a permit to come to the country and pay uh, uh, tax, uh, entry tax. Um, so the racism, you know, is not ignored, but I think it's kind of downplayed in the element of uh, trying to make Chinatown seem kind of desirable, exotic, strange, and foreign. Um, you know, British Columbia was built uh, on uh, kind of a racially stratified um, labor system. And Chinatown, for all its kind of architectural interest and all its, um, you know, historic interest, is a reminder uh, that uh, British Columbia was, and to some extent still is, a racially stratified province that uh, depended on a racial hierarchy to be able to build things like railways and coal mines and those things uh, as cheaply uh, and as uh, lucratively as, as it was. I just want to want to stress one point. So when we talk about the Canada as a multicultural country, or we when we stress the origin of Canadian multiculturalism, usually we you know trust the 
history of Canadian multiculturalism to Quebec or to maritime Canada. But actually, I will want to stress uh, Canadian multiculturalism also ori originated from British Columbia, uh, from like a, even local Chinatown. Uh, because we also assume Chinatown is kind of was, uh, was and also has been an exclusive Chinese settlement. It's not true. It was not the exclusive to Chinese culture uh, from the beginning. Perspective that offers both the historical and the contemporary, we spoke with Charlene Thornton Joe. Her knowledge of Chinatown comes from personal experience. Uh, my name is Charlene Thornton Joe, and uh, I'm a Victoria City Councillor, but a born and raised uh, Victoria uh, person whose family had been very involved in the Chinese community through the years. Um, okay, so you were born and raised here. Yes. Okay, um, maybe tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, I, I was born here, um, the youngest of four children, and uh, we lived, uh, for those of you who know Victoria very well, if you go across from where the curling rink is on Quadra, there is a little house uh, that now is, I think it's called Momo's Japanese uh, Restaurant. Well, that was our family home, um, and uh, we lived there for many years, and uh, but we finally had to move out because being the youngest in the family, that house wasn't big enough for four children. Uh, so we moved after that. But uh, my father was born uh, in Chinatown, you know, um, worked in Chinatown most of his life, is involved in the Chinese community. My grandparents also uh, were very much a part of the Chinese community. So definitely a love for, for it and uh, do everything I can to either be down there or to uh, make sure that it's uh, the it's existence uh, not only continues but flourishes and, and stays vibrant. Charlene is invested in Chinatown's vibrant future because the neighborhood is a part of her own history. I, I would say part of it uh, because of my upbringing. Mm -hmm. So um, my grandfather owned a shoe store in Chinatown, which my father took uh, over. So uh, I actually spent most of my childhood uh, before I went to school in the shoe store. Um, and I would drive my little car or pedal tricycle. Um, I was allowed to stay on the block, but I, as long as I didn't cross the street. And so I would leave my dad's uh, shoe store and I'd pedal down one of the alleys, which led to one of the bakeries. And they would give me their leftover dough and I would pedal back and my father and I would make little sugar cookies, which we would put on the wood stove. Uh, and after my nap, I would have those uh, cookies. I have uh, memories of uh, my parents were playing mahjong, uh, which is a, a very popular Chinese game. Uh, and I didn't have, back then you didn't have babysitters. They'd take you with, uh, with them. And I would find my own adventures, like uh, uh, throwing the pit of candies uh, off the balconies, which got me in trouble uh, after, after some time. And, um, and I would follow, then I would run across the street because my father worked at Don Me Restaurant. And so then I would help them either, well, I said I helped them fold uh, wontons for the wonton soup, but basically I just drank a lot of sh uh, free Shirley Temples and lined up all the little uh, plastic animals that held the maraschino cherries all in a row. Uh, so, you know, those are sort of my childhood memories. And um, and then after my father got off work, my mother finished playing Mahjong, many, then they would go to Paul's restaurant. Mm -hmm. And those are the days, and then they would leave me in the car and I would sleep in the car. 
until they finished doing that. And then they would take me home around uh, three in the morning. And, uh, you know, that was sort of my life. You know, I spent a lot of my time in Chinatown and uh, went through many of the alleys and, um, you know, had to show respect to many of the elders. And uh, so that was sort of my childhood and, and growing up. And most of our family celebrations were at Donmi Restaurant and, uh, so now, you know, I, I, I just think every time I go into one of those stores, whether it is my, my good friend Daniela Kuvalik owns Silk Road Tea, uh, but that was my aunt and uncle's tobacco shop. You know, the, the tattoo shop is, <clears throat> is, uh, is my, my, my uh, you know, father and grandfather's shoe store. Um, so, you know, so many of the stores there, I went there in my childhood uh, many, many times, whether it's Embassy Cafe, where we used to have, you know, roast beef and, um, you know, the best uh, butter tarts and donuts and honey buns. You know, you'll find that most of my memories revolve around food, but <laughs> definitely a big part of my life. So although her parents did live in Chinatown at one time, Charlene's family eventually followed the trend of Chinese families leaving Chinatown and moving en masse to neighborhoods that were more affordable. My, my family did, many of the, my parents and, uh, did, but uh, by the time, um, and my father actually lived upstairs at the shoe store, uh, by the time he got married, uh, that's when he, when he had children, he moved to the, the house on Quadra Street. Uh, and then in the, in the 60s, uh, many of the Chinese community moved to Gordon Head, uh, one, because uh, prices were, were better. And of course, by then, Chinese didn't have to stay uh, and live around the Chinatown area. Um, in the early days, they did, one, because of the discrimination of the day, uh, but two, they felt more comfortable being amongst each other. So, you know, most of them either lived in Chinatown or moved out to the North Park area around Princess. My family, my parents lived in around Princess Avenue, Pembroke, all, uh, all those streets along there. Um, okay, so then what does the Victoria Chinatown mean to you? Well, you know, I think it's uh, firstly a sense of my history, uh, and so lots of memories are involved with it, but, but also um, as a city councillor, it is something that I recognize is, is something that we treasure in Victoria. It is the oldest Chinatown in Canada. Uh, it is, you know, it has, it's a national historic site. Uh, it has one of the, uh, the first permanent uh, gates that have ever been erected. Um, so there's a lot of firsts. The first time the Queen is ever asked to come see uh, uh, a Chinatown. Um, and so through the years, uh, I've been very much connected with uh, many of the folks that have done a lot of work for our Chinatown and our Chinese community. So the Chinatown, of course, is one piece, uh, but also the Chinese cemetery at Harling Point is another thing that um, is, a, is a national historic site and something that I've worked uh, to, to, to make sure that um, people know about its history. Um, but uh, as a city councillor, I've had the opportunity to uh, do a little bit more, whether it's uh, work with staff to put up lights and lanterns, to put murals, so walls that were normally uh, graffitied a lot. Uh, we found a way to prevent from the graffiti, but to tell a little bit of the Chinese history. So uh, whether it's the one by QV's restaurant where we chose sort of a street scene with some children, and these were all pictures that were in uh, archive uh, photos, um, whether it is uh, naming the alleyway uh, between the CRD building and our parkade, uh, Limon Cao Way, uh, and having a mural of Limon Cao. Uh, those, those are the things that we try, we've tried to do to animate our China, Chinatown. And even the dragon uh, that is along one of the, our buildings was painted by our Chinese uh, school students. So 
Um, definitely very much involved. Um, I, I didn't go to the Chinese public school, and, and that's one of my family stories, as my older sister did, and she can speak, uh, speak fluent Cantonese. Uh, my brother sort of did, and when I say sort of, we found out that my father dropped them off every day, but he would skip out and go to the Hudson Bay back then and read comic books until school was over. And so by the time my other sister and I grew up, my parents figured it wasn't uh, worth trying to force us to go to Chinese school. So I didn't have to go, which as a child, I was really happy about that. But as an adult, of course, I, I regret that I can't speak uh, fluent Cantonese today. Charlene still contends with the concept of authenticity of victorious Chinatown. Yeah, so yeah the yeah. Chinese uh, public school is is the one that looks like a Chinese building. A lot of times when I do tours of Chinatown, people will say, you know, the buildings in Chinatown don't look very Chinese. But you have to understand that back then uh, there were no Chinese architects. The Chinese that came here came here to either, uh, you know, pan for gold to find gold or, or work on the railway or they were merchants or, you know, worked in some of the stores. Uh, they weren't architects, and so all the architecture in Chinatown is either uh, some kind of European, Italian, uh, British. Uh, and it, it wasn't until the Chinese school was built that some of the Chinese sort of design, whether it's the roofs that, uh, uh, you know, go up or, or the, the very definite, uh, you know, uh, red color, which, of course, is in, in Asian cultures, which in Chinese culture symbolizes good luck. So... Uh, the Chinese school, um, you know, was originally built uh, to help Chinese learn uh, Chinese. And um, and then they started to teach children English and arithmetic because uh, Chinese children weren't permitted to go to public school. Uh, and so now, today, it's only open after school at 4 o'clock and on weekends. And once again, uh, we welcome children and uh, who want to learn how to speak Chinese or do Chinese painting, Chinese dancing. And you don't have to be Chinese to, to learn. You just have to pay a fee to, to attend. Charlene's understanding of a changing Chinatown comes from her own family's experience, and she recognizes the real reason why Chinatown is no longer filled with Chinese-run businesses. Well, you know, a lot of people uh, contact me and say uh, that I must be sad and that, uh, you know, they go down to Chinatown and there are stores that definitely aren't Chinese. Mm -hmm. And I, I have to remind people that uh, we, we need to remember that the people that, you know, in, the, in those days when people said it was all Chinese owned and Chinese run, um, they worked seven days a week. They worked 12 hours a day. And they worked, uh, you know, people like my folks uh, worked very hard to make sure that we had an education, that we finished high school, if we want to go to university. Their hopes that we would not take over their jobs. They wanted us to have jobs that had a pension, that paid well, that had medical and dental. Uh, both of my parents, you know, worked in restaurants and um, they never had a pension, never had medical or dental, you know, made in, you know, meet they often work two jobs at one time um and so they didn't want that for their children and so of course the the children of uh, all those folks that had those stores in Chinatown have moved on they've become lawyers they become doctors uh in my case a city councillor and so um also recognizing that as people start to move up to the suburbs uh, in the 70s, you had to go to Chinatown to still go to a good Chinese restaurant. You had to, um, you know. But now, in every municipality, uh, there is a, a great Chinese restaurant. There's probably, everybody probably knows a restaurant that in their neighborhood that serves Chinese food that they may go to instead of coming into Chinatown. Um, even grocery stores, you know, there's every grocery store has an Asian section. 
And so you don't need to come to Chinatown to buy your groceries. So we're, you know, I think we're still very fortunate that uh, tourists still love our Chinatown. We still work to try to make sure that the shops not only stay vibrant. Um, you know, people will call me and say, I'm so sad that the shop closed down. I used to love going into it. And I would say, and did you buy lots? And they'd say, well, no, I never bought anything. <laughs> and I say, well, people you know, need your business to, to survive. So I always tell people they need to go to the butcher, which is uh, uh, my understanding, the butcher uh, is is the oldest existing uh, store in in uh, I think the Pacific Northwest. So even in the you know in the same business, the same um, area, uh, same name of the the restaurant. I mean, you look at Don Me. My my father, who is ninety six, I believe, is is the oldest surviving person who was an employee there. Uh, he started as a, I think a dishwasher and a busboy and. Uh, moved up along the way. Um, so, you know, people love our Chinatown. They need to frequent it. They need to, uh, uh, you know, buy things in it. And so I welcome the stores that uh, want to be in Chinatown and, and want to be part of the community. And when I look at Silk Road, you know, they moved into Chinatown when people were saying, well, why would you want to go into Chinatown uh, when, you know, it's becoming run down? And I think now I think she's been in business over 25 years and her, her business is thriving. So, um, you know, I think we still need to work on it. We have to work on uh, making sure that the, not only the store is uh, uh, not vacant, and we don't have very much vacancy, but we're also trying to be selective in, in uh, who the owners uh, rent to to make sure it's vibrant. But this doesn't mean that Charlene isn't interested in preserving the rich history of Chinatown. I've been I've had the opportunity to get uh, some comments. Uh, this has been a great year in that I decided to, um, w along with some others, we decided to have a, a Chinese community reunion uh, because we recognize that, uh, you know, some of those stories are going to be lost and some of those pictures are going to be lost. And so we invited all the families of the ones that made up our original Chinatown. And we were very pleased to have uh, most of the family members come. Uh, and people keep saying, when's the next one? Now that the first one has been done, they want they want to come. So, you know, whether it's the, the, the original owners of, of Quan Lee's uh, grocery store, the original owners of uh, the Embassy Cafe. Um, and then from there, we started, to, with the help of my cousin, Tony Joe, we started a Facebook page called the Chinese uh, Community of Victoria, B.C., mm -hmm. And we get people to send us their pictures of Chinatown. So we've been able to start to preserve those, those old pictures. So, you know, I, I like people to recognize uh, the history um, and uh, the struggles of many of the people that came uh, from China, hoping to give their, their family a better life. And many of them um, weren't intending to stay in Canada. They hoped to make some money and return back home. Um, but many, many, such as my grandparents, decided that Victoria, you know, Victoria and Canada was going to be their home, and they stayed. Um, so, you know, just uh, thinking about the history, um, and also think of uh, the many businesses. Most of the businesses there, uh, I would say, over ninety percent are small businesses. They're local businesses, and uh, I always say to support any of our our small local businesses in the community. Um, so, you know, I just, uh, and uh, come down more often and, and visit it and, and bring your family. There's opportunity to do tours of Chinatown. I know John Adams does tours. Um, I do some school tours as well. Um, so just instead of just going into the shops, uh, wander and, and take, in, take in our Chinatown. 
Because of her history and her role as a city councillor, Charlene is uniquely positioned to understand what it means for a new generation of people to be moving into Chinatown. When, even when we look at the population, the people that lived in Chinatown in the early days were people that, uh, that had to live there in tenement housing. Mm-hmm. And then uh, through the 70s and 80s and 90s, we started to see artists that wanted to live down there and, and be part of our Chinese community. And I always laugh. I have a story that... Uh, when my husband and I first got married, we wanted to move into Chinatown because I was just finishing studying Asian studies at UVic and I wanted to eat, breathe and sleep to the Chinese community. And my father said in, in gasping, saying, you know, we worked all our lives to get our family out of Chinatown and you want to move back to Chinatown? You know, to, to, to many of the Chinese community to move out of Chinatown was becoming successful. Uh, but now you see that uh, we've got, uh, you know, new condominiums being built um, um, and many of them are being very sensitive to the, the Chinese uh, ar- uh, architecture. And some of them, for like Chris Lefebvre, has done some where there's been minimal changes to uh, to the outside exterior of the buildings. And and you're seeing more people wanting to live there. And, and my husband and I have even discussed that maybe in retirement, we'd love to now move back to Chinatown uh, and so that I can wake up in the morning and go to the shops and, and, and breathe in the, uh, the Chinese, uh, the air in the community. And I've had the fortune that uh, my grandparents were part of uh, an organization of the Chinese Freemason and, and the Dakun Club. And my father and mother uh, became a member. And so uh, now I have just uh, more recently joined. And so I'm the third generation of, of, of a member. And whatever contribution I can do to the Chinese community as we move into the future, um, that's that's what I'm looking for. My, my dream is uh, uh, is to open up a small Chinese historical museum. Um, just sort of like a smaller satellite, just to show the local Chinese experience, whether it's the stores, the restaurants, um, the clothing, uh, um, you know, just something uh, so that we can uh, show the pictures and and, uh, what uh, Victoria meant to the Chinese uh, that came here. And, uh, you know, did things like when I look at my father and his friends who were born here, who weren't given a right to vote, weren't considered Canadian citizens, and uh, were conscripted and were willing to fight for their country. And because of that, uh, they came back after the war and the Chinese were given the vote. So I don't um, um, take for van- granted you know, the privilege that I have today to not only to vote, but to, to run for council. Like John Adams, Charlene does indulge in an air of mystery around Chinatown, but it's not rooted in racist tropes and sensationalism. It comes from an honest understanding of the history of this place and the people who built and maintained it. One of the other things we asked, you know, John Adams and other people were like, you know, how Chinatown's always kind of looked as like this exotic, mysterious place. Um, And, you know, for the white people, I think it was little bit true and maybe that was one of the reasons it was popular they thought it was cool to come to Chinatown but I really like listening to your story I kind of feel like like you get to know the actual people working there Mm -hmm. then we kind of stop looking at it as this like mysterious place Mm -hmm. that we don't really know Mm -hmm. you know like a othering but if you get to know the people then I think we have more reason to actually go there yeah yeah you know, I, I like to think that the little bit of mystery and exoticness of, of Chinatown is still there. Mm-hmm. You know, there's great stories of how Fantan Alley came about. And, um, you know, I love talking about, uh, you know, 
going through Fantan Alley. I love the fact that uh, the movie Bird on the Wire was filmed mm-hmm. in Fantan Alley, and my uncle got to be have a little part sitting on the bench. Um, so there is a lot of mysteries of uh, the little, uh, ton, you know, sort of pathways and alleyways that people might not know about. Uh, and so I think that's still still fun. We have our stories of murder murders that happen in Chinatown. Um, um, you know, the, the gun that was found behind a wall in one of the shops, uh, which she has on display, the Fortune Gallery. When she moved in there, she found it uh, behind a wall, so she has it on display. Uh, and, and, you know, what what is the story behind that? Um, so there is some mystery, um, but, but, but also I think it's a story of uh, hardworking people. It's a story of uh, the, the, the Im- immigrant experience. Uh, it's a story of, you know, wanting to give uh, your family uh, better opportunities. Um, and, and, I, and I think the story is going to go on. There's going to be a future for our Chinatown. This episode has taken us down the darkened alleys of Chinatown where ghost stories and tales of gambling and opium dens are born. But it also took us into the history of Victoria's working class immigrants who came here with the hopes for creating a better future and who built the foundation of global political movements. We hope this episode has provided a different perspective on this storied neighborhood so you can think more critically about the way Chinatown has been portrayed and what the changes will mean for the future. Thank you to our guests on this episode, John Adams, Song Feng Chen, John Lutz, and Charlene Thornton Joe. Full Circle is produced by Kemi Craig with help from Yukari Peerless, Samuel Nowicki, and Arcade Palette. Our executive producer is Mary Decker. This program was made possible with the generous support of the Community Radio Fund of Canada. If you like this podcast and want to hear more, catch our program next week. And please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this episode, you'll love Taking Up Space's episode that analyzes how progressive Victoria really is by looking at cases of racism and homophobia called You Can't Sit With Us. Hey, give me your ear. Let's, uh, let's pull back the curtain for a minute and check out behind the scenes of CFPB's podcasts. My name is Kemi Craig and I am the producer Full Circle is a podcast series that's actually been going for years, and I was invited to produce eight episodes last year. I grew up listening to radio, so it it inspired me to create a space on the air that was for 
BIPOC communities and by BIPOC communities. And by BIPOC, I mean Black, Indigenous, and people of color. I feel like radio is such an important um, avenue for literally being heard, for having your voices heard. And I, in all of the work that I do, am dedicated to making sure that people of color and Indigenous people and Black people have a space where they can not only be heard, but also we're able to listen to each other. I learned a lot making the series. I learned a lot about myself as well as the people that I was fortunate enough to work with or interview. Um, and I think one of the biggest things that I learned was to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. You know, if you're talking about topics that topics that are challenging that you don't usually hear about in kind of everyday media avenues or even everyday conversations with people that you speak with at work or in your homes. Um, talking about sensitive issues, like I recognize that I needed to allow space for myself to make mistakes and space uh, to really be compassionate and meet others where they were at so that we could actually have a conversation that hopefully inspired others to think critically about the world that they live in and then take part in shaping it. <laughs>